The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving Day. I wanted to read to you uh, George Washington's proclamation about Thanksgiving. He says, I'm just going to read you this little short portion of it. Uh, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress, imagine that, have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Praise the Lord for his goodness to us. We are a privileged people. We know there's plenty of problems in the American church. We've been Americanized way too much. Uh, And yet God's put us in a place where we have this freedom and openness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people all around us and to be open about our thanksgiving for his goodness to us. What a glorious God we have. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Most of us are familiar with the story of uh, Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are thrown in jail in Philippi and God brings an earth, they're in stocks, but God brings an earthquake and all the stocks fall off and the doors open up. And here's Paul and Silas along with all the other prisoners there and the jailkeeper uh, whose life would be in danger if those prisoners got away came running out and uh, was ready to commit suicide. And Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. Everything's okay. And the guy says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You think that answer is still accurate? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12? There's no other name given among men, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We're looking at the life of Jesus in the book of Luke, and uh, what a glorious story this is. What a wonderful, wonderful revelation of our Savior. And it starts early, not as early as the Gospel of John. If you remember, we looked at John 1, and we saw Jesus before the world began, before the foundation of the world. But now we see him... Uh, and we discover how he entered into this world. How did the, what we call the incarnation, that is the eternal son of God becoming flesh, how did that take place? And that's what we're looking at in this book of Luke chapter one. If you'll, term, if you'll look at verse 26, let me just read this short section. Now in the sixth month, and that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. If you remember the first section in this book, it was about God, how God sent Gabriel to give a message to Zechariah, who was an old man, and his wife was advanced in years, and he told him, your wife is going to bear a child. And he was kind of amazed. He just couldn't believe how that could be true. And Gabriel told him the whole story, and so because he didn't believe, Uh, Gabriel told him, you're going to be unable to speak until the child is born. And if you remember the story, that's how it came out. We'll see that later in this book. Is he didn't speak for the entire time of her pregnancy until the child was born. And finally, he could speak. And he actually told him what John's name was going to be, John the Baptist. Now, the reason this was so significant is John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. God not only sent Jesus into the world, but he caused uh, the birth of a man that became known as John the Baptist to announce to the nation of Israel that their Messiah had come and to call them to repentance, to have a change of heart and change of mind, to turn to this Messiah of God. And of course, some of them did. Uh, John says he came unto his own things, his own creation and his own people. Israel did not receive him, but to as many as did receive him. 
To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believed in his name. And so there was a large number, in fact, 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, and then another few thousand, it reached probably 10,000 people before the gospel went out to the Gentiles when they went north into Antioch with the gospel. And so this is a story we're looking at today about how Jesus came into this world. And uh, he is our savior. In fact, I want to make this clear. What the Bible teaches is the way you get saved is not simply by believing something or doing something. It's by receiving a person, by putting your trust in a person who is the savior. Jesus is the savior and he's the only one who can save you. And when you put your trust in him as savior, he does that very thing. He brings you in, and the word saves, the primary word for saves, sozo, means to make you whole and complete. Now, there are times in life when we realize that we are not whole and complete. We actually feel our brokenness. And this is what happens when we come under conviction of sin as we come to the place where we realize, I need something outside of myself to make me whole. And only Jesus Christ can fulfill that. And that's exactly what he does to every person who comes to him in faith who calls upon his name, who believes in his name, who believes that he is exactly who the Bible says that he is. So here is this story. Let me read it to you, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. In in other words, you've been graced. God has poured his grace out to you. And he went on, he said, The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. You found grace from God. And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He's going to give Jesus the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? I've never known a man. How could I possibly give birth to this one called Emmanuel, the son of God? The angel Gabriel answers her. And he said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He's going to bring about something in you that you could not possibly experience otherwise. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to bring this about. And the power of the Most High, that is the Father, will overshadow you. So the Spirit is going to cause the conception, and the Father is going to watch over this entire pregnancy for nine months. The the power of the Most High God. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary responds in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Wow. I love the response. That's where I want to camp on in a little while. The response of a faithful servant of God in a situation that she couldn't figure out how could this possibly be what he's called me to. Sometimes when I share with people that the Bible teaches that God has given them a spiritual gift and that they are to serve, they're to be a servant of fellow believers and God wants to use them significantly in other believers' lives, it just seems so hard to believe So many of us, what we want to do is be quiet and stay out of the way and not let anybody know that we're even around. (laughs) And yet what God wants to do is to use you as his servant. And this is what Mary was confronted with. Now, who is this angel? 
This angel, Gabriel, isn't Rodley's grandson. It's, it's an angel. He's, he is an angel that appears to three different people in Scripture, to Daniel, in Daniel 7 and 8, I believe it is, and then to Zechariah, we saw last week, and now to Mary. His name means, uh, God is my strength. This is a messenger from heaven sent specially to bring a message, an important message. He did it to Daniel in Daniel 7 and 8, and he did it to Zechariah in Luke 1, and now in Luke Luke 1, later in Luke 1, he comes and appears to Mary six months after that to give her the news. This young girl, we don't know how old she is. She's a young maiden, but she's engaged. She's never had a physical relationship with a man. She's never had sex with a man. And so how could she possibly become pregnant? Now, she's going to be accused of being immoral by others. Because who can believe this story that she has conceived supernaturally by the hand of God? How can this possibly have happened? But that's exactly what's prophesied to her. Now, everything about Jesus reveals his true identity. He is a divine person who sent from the Father into our world to take the next step of reestablishing God's kingdom among men. And in fact, what we are going to be told in the New Testament is that when we come to faith in Christ, we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And the kingdom of his dear son is in existence today. It's a certain phase of the kingdom of God, and we experience it when we come to faith in Christ. And in fact, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is reigning from the third heaven. And we are in this kingdom, this form of the kingdom of God, this phase in the kingdom of God. Even though we can't see him, we love him. And even though we're not seeing him now, but rejoicing, but loving him, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We trust Jesus Christ and we love Jesus Christ and he gives us joy because of that and we can't even see him. In fact, Peter says we should live in such a way that when people see us, they want to ask us questions. What's wrong with you? Why are you so full of hope? Well, I'm in the kingdom of God <laughs> and my king is reigning from the third heaven, and you can't see him, but he can see you. And he's almighty God. And he can save anyone who comes to him in faith. But you have to receive his salvation as a gift, coming from the hand of this glorious Savior. A little later, Luke writes, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Or Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. He demonstrated the fact that he was the king. Or Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Today, we're being introduced in this passage to Jesus before he was born. And then we'll look in a couple weeks when he was born, when he came into this world, the most humble of circumstances. This young maiden, who's not even married yet, but she's betrothed. She's probably in her late teens. And so when the angel says, you're going to give birth, to the Son of God. He's going to come in the likeness of sinful flesh and be born into this world in the most humble of circumstances because that's how God decided to save this world was through his Son. And so he sends his Son into the world in this humble way that's described for us in this book. In these passages, along with other our passages that we're looking at today, we learned that he is the eternal Son of God who comes into the world to bring a brand new phase of God's kingdom and call everyone into it. It's an amazing thing. Salvation is free, but you have to receive it as a gift. You have to respond to this offer of the gospel, of what God has done in his Son. And when you do, you enter into this relationship with Christ and you enter into the kingdom. You're transformed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. In fact, that's the first thing you notice 
is the lights go on and all of a sudden you see the glory of Christ. Paul put it this way. He said, it's, it's the, the God who said, let light shine in darkness has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in our hearts. And all of a sudden we see Christ is high and lifted up. So it's not far-fetched for us to hear that Jesus is the King of glory, the high King of heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father reigning over the kingdom of God this very day, at this very moment. And so there are times you can get pretty happy about it and have a lot of joy, and you begin to express it to people, and it seems a little odd to some people. In fact, it seems a little odd to some of you, <laughs> that why would, we, why would we want to rejoice? And again, I say rejoice, because the King of glory is seated on the throne, <laughs> the one that you would dress, the one that you come to with your needs that are so overwhelming. Why do you have hope? Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And the Bible says he's interceding for us. So when we pray, we just come alongside Jesus and we pray to the Father. And he hears. And in fact, Jesus says in John 15 that he actually gets glory from answering your prayers. Most Christians that I talk to think that you would have to twist God's arm to get him to answer prayers for them. At least some specific prayer that they have that they're really worried about. If the Bible says that God delights in answering our prayers when we pray in the name of Jesus, when we pray in faith, when we pray as followers of Jesus Christ, and we're praying in response to the Word of God, what it has told us to do. Now, uh, listen to Jesus as he preaches to the scribes and Pharisees, that is, the religious leaders of his day. This is what he says in Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in, entering to go in. See, Jesus went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and people began to believe on him, and they were entering the kingdom. And he said there were the religious leaders who didn't want them to enter in. They didn't want them to believe on the Lord Jesus. That was what Paul was doing, going to Damascus to arrest Christians and to throw them into prison because he hated the fact that there were people among Israel who believed that Jesus was the Messiah even after he was crucified because they knew he'd been raised from the dead. In fact, some of them saw him with their own eyes. Thomas touched him. Jesus said, here, put your hand in the hole in my side. So here, the the man that they saw hanging on the cross, dying for his people, they saw resurrected from the dead. And we're told that over 500 people saw him at one time. And what we have in the New Testament is their testimony. And we have come to believe their testimony. And this is the testimony, John says, that he has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son. This life is in his son. So what do you have to receive to receive the life? You have to receive his son. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life, and whoever does not have the son does not have the life. So this is the birth of the one who is going to reign on high and is going to save his people from their sins. Even though it's a very humble description, and as we find out later, Jesus is going to be born in the most humble of circumstances. Not in the hospital, not in the delivery room, but in an animal shelter. You see, God wanted to make something clear to us. The Son of God has come all the way down from the very presence of God, his Father, into the very pit in which we live and have come to live because of the fall. He comes down into the very midst of our fallenness in order to bring God to us and then to bring us to God through faith in him as the Savior. Now, I want you to notice this. This is what we learn about uh, Jesus' mother. The mother of Jesus. This is what we learn about the mother of Jesus. First of all, we learn her name. Her name is Mary. Uh, Then we learn that her hometown is Nazareth. If you were to look on the map in the back of your Bible, you'd see that Nazareth Nazareth was a little town up in Galilee. It wasn't a prominent city, but that's where Mary lived. And then she is engaged to a man named Joseph. 
Now, being engaged was called betrothal, and it was when a, a woman was promised to the man, and the man was promised to the woman. Oftentimes, this was arranged by the family. And Mary and Joseph had become betrothed. Now, in this culture, they would stay sexually pure throughout the entire engagement. I know in our culture, we use words differently when we talk about somebody being engaged and so forth. But Joseph and Mary were sexually pure. They, had, they were both virgins. She had, had never had sex with a man. And she was betrothed to him, and, and, and then we're, we're told she's a virgin. Now, what's, there's something significant about this. Of course, first of all, it's, it's supernatural. But secondly, this a virgin being pregnant was something that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 7 in a completely different context. And what he was doing was he was challenging Ahaz, the king of Judah, who wanted to trust in Assyria instead of God. That's a stupid thing to do, isn't it? It's stupid when I want to believe in something other than God for my deliverance too. And it's even stupid when you do it. And so what what Isaiah was trying to do was to talk Ahaz into trusting God instead of Assyria. And so in this conversation, he says to him, if you're having trouble believing, ask God for a sign and it will be given to you. A sign in heaven or a sign as deep as hell. You just ask him for a sign, he'll give you a sign. And, and Ahaz, who was an unbelieving king, said, oh, I don't want to bother God. I'm not going to ask him for a sign. I don't want to insult him. And so Isaiah says, guess what? He's going to give you a sign. And the sign is a virgin will be pregnant and will, become, and will give birth to a son whose name will be Emmanuel. And then the reason he does this is because he's got, he needs a time frame. And so he describes this boy's life. He comes, he's born, and then he's in for 12 years, 12 to 13 years, he describes that time frame in the life of this young man who was born. Probably there was a local fulfillment, but this boy that was born and 12 years he spends in his early life. And he uses that to give him a time frame. That time frame is, this is how long it's going to take for God to deliver you from the nation you're so afraid of. They were afraid of Syria and Israel to the north. And he says, they're going to be gone in 12 years. And so he talks about this pregnant virgin and the child that she gives birth to, which had significance for that day, but it also had significance far in the future. He said, this is a sign as high as heaven, as deep as hell. This is a sign. God sends his son into the world and he's born of a virgin. It's supernatural. It's totally supernatural. It's impossible. Now, what he had done in the previous section of this book, remember, we see the last prophet of the old covenant born of a woman who was past childbearing age. She was a woman who was advanced in years. And yet she has a child. And that child, John the Baptist, is going to announce the coming of Messiah. And now, one of her relatives, in some translations it'll say she's, uh, that Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. It doesn't, what it says is they're relatives. They're related to each other in some way. We don't know if it was an aunt or a cousin or what it was. But they're related. And so Jesus is related to John the Baptist. Now, think of this, the birth of these two men, the birth of the forerunner who's going to announce the coming of the second man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And what we have here is the birth of the last prophet of the old covenant and the last Adam of the human race. He's the last Adam because he's the one who becomes the final man who is tested for a people. And instead of failing the test, as Adam did in the garden, he passes the test and he becomes qualified to be our Savior. And so we have the the birth of these two men, the birth of the last prophet in the Old Testament and the birth of the last Adam in the human race. So what's the meaning of all of this? What message does this messenger bring? Well, he stuns her first with his greeting. And the way he greets her, it shocks her because he calls her favored one, which means 
you are an object of God's favor in a very special way. And being a humble young lady, she didn't know what he meant by that. It was as though he called her some magnificent name. And then he calms her fears in verse 30, if you'll notice. He says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. This is what angels always say when they appear. You know, the Bible says there in Hebrews, there have been people who've entertained angels and they didn't even know it. Now, I'm not really looking for angels to appear anywhere, but sometimes I guess that happens. And some of you guys have told me you think that your wife is an angel. Angels have appeared. But this angel, every time an angel appears to, to a human being, they always say, don't be afraid. Why is that? Because it would scare you to death for an angel to appear. And so Gabriel appears and he tells her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. You found grace with God. God is bestowing his grace upon you. This young lady is going to be the mother of the Messiah. It's what probably every woman in Israel would love to have been is the mother of the Messiah. And he chooses this little maiden girl to be the mother of the Messiah. And then he stuns her again in verses 31 through 33 by giving her this news. Here's the news. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, or Jehovah saves. It's the, it's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. He will be great. He will be great. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. This is a special person. This is the Messiah. This is God's chosen man who's going to sit on the seat of David, the throne of David, to rule over his people. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now, we like to think really good thoughts when our children are born. Like, boy, he's going to be an athlete. Look at that chest. She's beautiful. Look at her. This is a prophecy. This is the angel telling him what's going to happen in the future. This is truth. And then her response reveals her feelings here in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? How can I have a child? I'm not married. That's impossible. And then, so she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And then Gabriel explains the Trinitarian shape. Forgive me for that. The Trinitarian shape just means how the birth of Jesus was involved both all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says that the Spirit is going to cause the conception supernaturally. This expression, coming upon, means when the Spirit comes upon a person to empower them to do the will of God, which they don't have the capacity to do on their own. It's actually used in the Old Testament of the guys who built the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, most of the guys I know in construction think they know how to do everything. You should never make any suggestions to them whatsoever because it's an insult. But in the case of the tabernacle, God had a set of very specific plans, and the Spirit filled the construction workers to build it exactly as God said. And that's what it means for the Holy Spirit to come upon a person. He comes in power and enables them to do the assignment that God has given them. You're going to be drugged before magistrates and kings and rulers, but don't worry about what you're going to say. For the Spirit will come upon you and he'll empower you and he'll enable you to speak as God wants you to speak. Isn't that wonderful? They they said, you don't have to worry. You don't have to prepare a speech. Just let the Spirit empower you to communicate what God wants you to communicate. So the Spirit is going to come upon Mary. The Son, the eternal Son of God, who has existed from all eternity, the, the eternal Son, the person of the Son, joins himself to this conceived child in the womb of Mary. This is absolutely stunning that the Son of God, who is holding everything together, according to Colossians, 
The Son of God is holding everything together in this universe. Nothing has come into being apart from him. And now that he has brought everything into being, nothing stays in being unless he keeps it in being. And yet, he spent nine months in the womb of Mary as he was holding all things together. Isn't that amazing? And it says that the the Father oversaw this pregnancy. The power of the Most High, the God who is all-powerful, the Father, watched over this pregnancy, and it was perfected, and Jesus was born. Oh, yeah, he was born in a in an animal shelter, but he was born perfect. uh, The way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8 is, um, what the law could not do, God did by sending his only son into, in in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Well, what does that mean? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't come in the likeness of flesh. He really came in flesh. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. There was no sin in him. But he was a real human being, and he looked like other human beings. He didn't shine, except on one occasion on the Mount of Transfiguration. But most of the time, he looked like every other man. In fact, Isaiah makes the point that when you looked at him, there was nothing about him that would attract you to him, as though he was some high-born person. And yet, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, so that as an offering for sin, he could do away with our sin, the guilt of our sin and the bondage of our sin and the separation that has come about because we have sinned personally and in Adam. Jesus came into the world to save a people for himself. And then uh, Mary's faith is expressed in verse 38. I think this is a wonderful culmination of this section. Look at it. And Mary says... Verse 37 is truth that you ought to memorize. You ought to memorize Luke 137, for nothing will be impossible to God. For nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary responds to this statement. And this is what Mary says. This is an expression of faith. This is a humble young lady expressing faith in the God who sent this messenger to her. And she says, and Mary said, behold, the bond slave, the doulos, actually it's a feminine form, dulia, the the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. I want God's will to be accomplished in my life. And the angel departed from her. What a glorious response this is. Um, it reveals faith. Uh, back, I want you to see the implications of this because I think this is such a great uh, expression of what it means to be an obedient servant of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you who the servants of Christ are. It's all those people who have come to rest their faith in Jesus Christ and have received salvation from him. They have come to know him that they haven't seen. Remember what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, though you, not Peter, because Peter had saw him, but he says, though you, the people he's talking to, these Christians scattered throughout uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, he says, you've never seen him, but you love him. You know, that's what's weird about you folks. You, you, you Christians here, you have never seen Christ, but you love him. Isn't that something? I didn't love my wife until I saw her. I can still remember the first time I saw her, 15 years old. She was 15. We were in high school together. And, and uh, we became really good friends first for about three years. And then we started dating when she got to be a little bit older. And um, I can remember... I couldn't have fallen in love with her without seeing her. Could you? No. But Peter says, though you have never seen him, you love him. And though you're not seeing him now, he's not here in your presence. You have faith in him. You're trusting him. You're believing somebody you've never seen. How, are you, how is that possible? Well, it's because you believe the testimony about him. 
Some people think of Christians, they, yeah, they believe in faith. You know, you, you just, if you believe stuff strong enough, it becomes true. No, that's not what we believe at all. That's not faith. That isn't faith at all. Faith is believing the testimony of God that he's given to us through his word. Faith is believing what God says about his son and what he's going to do through his son, what he has done through his son, and what he's going to do in your life through his son. And he says, if you'll just come with empty hands and receive this gift from me, this is what my son is going to do for you. He's going to save you for eternity. And we came to trust the testimony. We believe the testimony. And he saved us. He gave us this gift of salvation by faith. Now, this, uh, first, the first implication for us is that Jesus is the ultimate servant of the Lord. And Mary is just a glory, is really a wonderful example of a servant. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, one of the titles, in fact, probably the most lofty title that the Son of God has as a result of the incarnation is that he is the servant of the Lord. He's the servant of the Lord. And Mary is a wonderful example of, the, of being a servant of the Lord. And you are a servant of the Lord if you have come to trust him. You're a servant of the Lord. And then every Christian is a servant of the Lord, as I just said. I'd like to write that on your forehead. Every Christian is a servant of the Lord. And the way we serve him is by serving his people. And then there are four crucial prerequisites for being a servant of the Lord like Mary was. The first is that you have you have to love one another. John thirteen thirty four. I give you a new commandment that you love one another the way I have loved you. Now the Old Testament said you should love your neighbor as yourself, but Jesus raises the bar. He says, "I want you to love each other the way I loved you." Well, how did he love us? How did he love us? He laid down his life for us. You know, I could say, hey, I love you, but I can't do this for you because I need this. Jesus says, I'll lay down my life for you. And that's what he did. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh for us. And then uh, humility. First Peter 5.5 5 says this. He says, all of you in the body of Christ, clothe yourselves with humility. Humility means lowliness of mind, seeing myself as your servant. So he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. I want you to think for a second. This is the apostle Peter. This is the apostle Peter. He's a guy that when Jesus got up from the table, stripped off his clothing, put a towel about him to identify himself as a servant, and went about and washed all the apostles' feet. Because only the lowliest servant was required to wash feet. (laughs) And so he goes around, Jesus goes around, kneels down and washes their feet. When he gets to Peter, Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And that's when Peter says, well, go ahead and wash my feet and my head and my body and everything. This is, the, this is what John MacArthur calls him, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth because of this. Because he was always saying the wrong thing, wasn't he? But you see, this same Peter now, this same guy, as he's writing First Peter, he says, all of you put on the apron of a slave. Humility. Be ready to serve one another. To me, I've come to see this after all these years of, of uh, being involved in ministry is that the hardest thing for us to do is exactly what Jesus says the new covenant is, the new commandment is, is that we love one another the way he loved us and that we humble ourselves and put, us in the posi- put ourselves in a position to serve one another. The most common reason people have told me over the years why they leave the church, when they leave one church to go to another church, you know what the most common reason is? We just can't connect. We've been here for months and we can't connect with anybody. Now, you could say, you know, you need to learn how to connect. (laughs) Let me give you a lesson on how to connect. But the fact is, when we started this church 19 years ago, if you remember, the first sermon was about our desire to be a welcoming church. 
But there's something even more than being a welcoming in church. We have to be a church that loves each other. Because that's by definition what a church is. It's a group of people who are bound together by love for one another because of their love for Christ. And so there'd be no such thing as being the kind of people that it's hard to connect. In other words, we don't care what color you are, what your financial status is, what your nationality is. What we care about is Jesus died for you. He valued you to the point of laying down his life for you. He humbled himself and he served you. But we have to humble ourselves and see ourselves as servants of one another. I'm your servant. The Apostle Peter told the Corinthians, who are a proud people, and he's having to confront them, and he says, look, I don't want to lord it over your faith. I want to be, we want to be co-workers with your joy, for your joy. There's no such thing in the church as hierarchy. Nobody ever gets, there, there's, no, there's not even any honorific titles in the church. There's no honorific titles. We've made some up, you know, and uh, that we use, but the titles that we are given in Scripture about believers in the church, those aren't honorific titles. Those are functional titles. Because the one who's honored among us is Jesus. And, And in fact, Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant of all. So the, the more people you serve, the more people you see as, as those whom you should serve, the greater you are in the kingdom of God. Now, what I'd like to show you is uh, this last part. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. I've showed you this many times. This is one of my, I, I have some hobby horses. This is one of them. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. This is, this is the Apostle Peter writing in about 60 A.D. That's a long time ago, right? But this is what he says, the end of all things is drawn near. One of the things that really confuses people, it confuses their eschatology, is that the New Testament says we are in the last days, and we've been in the last days since Jesus went back to the Father. And that's what he means, the end of all things has drawn near because Christ has come. Christ went to the cross. He was resurrected. He was sent into the Father and he poured out the Spirit, the eschatological Spirit, the the Spirit of the last days. And so we're living in the last days. And so what he's going to do is say, this is how we ought to live in the last days. Because we're in the last days, I don't care if you're pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, or whatever, the fact is we're living in the last days. That's what the Bible says. It says it over and over and over and over again. And so Peter says, look, the, the end of all things is drawn near. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So the first thing he says we ought to be doing is that we ought to be having a kind of mindset that prepares us for prayer. Wouldn't it be great if we got to the place that we, this was just the way we were, that every time we got together with fellow believers, we would pray? It would just be a foregone thing. Let's, let's pray. Or somebody tells you, man, I hope you, would you pray for my uncle? He's going through this and I say, yeah, I'll pray for him right now. Let's pray. And so he says, we ought to be sober and alert for the purpose of prayers. And the second thing he says is, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. I hope you get the implications. We need to be empowered to forgive a multitude of sins because there's going to be a multitude of sins among us. It's just going to happen. People are going to gossip. They're going to slander. They're going to withhold love. They're going to be selfish and so forth. It's going to happen. But there's forgiveness in Christ. And so he tells us, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You'll be able to forgive. Isn't it something? I have three children. I can forgive them so easily. I can forgive my grandkids so easily. Why is that? Because I love them. I love when parents go, when parents uh, demonstrate this, that they love their children no matter, no matter what's going on, they still love them because of who they are to them. Isn't it great that God, God treats you the way he treats you because of who you are to him? That's, that's, that's Romans chapter 6. That's what it says. 
Then the third thing is be hospitable to one another without complaint, which means welcome people into your life. Share what you have with them joyfully without murmuring about it. And then finally, this is what I really wanted to get to, as each one has received a, a gift, as each one has received a gift, what that means is you received a gift. Every believer has received a gift. What is this gift? Well, he tells you, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I have worn you out with this passage, but what it means to be a good steward of the manifold grace of God is learn how to dispense God's grace into people's lives. Uh, We are standing in grace, and the thing that we have to give to each other, just like Gabriel said to Mary, you have found grace with God. And you know, you can tell when you found grace with people. There's people you know, they just don't like you. It doesn't matter, and, and maybe there's a really good reason for it, but you can't quite figure it out because it doesn't show up in the mirror. Uh, but the fact is, we have been sent here to dispense grace. Now, grace is not what you deserve. It's, what, it's God giving himself to you through one another. And he says, this is what spiritual gifts are all about. Their abilities to dispense God's grace in a specific way. The wonderful thing about the day of Pentecost when God, when Christ poured out his spirit, he went back to the Father and he poured out his spirit and he had told his disciples, on that day when the spirit's poured out, you will know that I'm with the Father and you are in me and I am in you. So you have received the spirit as a believer. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10 says that very specifically. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. So every Christian has a spiritual gift, an ability to dispense God's grace. Some of you know how to dispense God's grace by making of apple pie. I've tasted some of those. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful gift. I'm just kidding, but you've been given a spiritual gift. Now, you can get real complicated and go through Paul's 20 gifts that he lists in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and in different places. Or you can do what I like to do is I just go to Peter and Peter says there's two kinds of gifts. You can't even forget this. There are serving gifts and there are speaking gifts. And you have either a serving gift or a speaking gift. And so what we are supposed to do is we're supposed to dispense grace, the grace of God into one another's lives through the gift that God's given us. I was telling somebody this morning, I've had this happen so many times where, some, where God uses a person to come up to me and begin to talk to me and encourage my heart. And it's like a word from the living God. It's not revelation. It's spirit-prompted encouragement. You know, it does wonders for you when somebody comes and says, you know, I want you to know, I really do appreciate you. I really do love you. I'm so grateful that you're a member in the body of Christ. Have you ever told anybody that? You, you need to because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has anointed you. That's what First John 2 says, that we have the anointing. The Spirit has anointed you, so you're an anointed speaker now, an actor, because the Spirit is in you. And the Spirit will empower you to encourage one another, to build up one another, to love one another in practical, clear ways. And if you're a spiritually growing believer, you can see what real need a person has. You can see the real need. Some people may say, what that guy needs is a swift kick in the rear end. And you go, no, that's not what he needs. What he needs is somebody to come alongside him and to instruct him about what God's done for him and what God wants to do in him and through him. See, that that Spirit of God will give you that wisdom. And so forgive me for doing this. I know I'm kind of getting off track because the the real important thing about this passage is that Jesus, the eternal son of God has been, the, the eternal son of God has become Jesus, the incarnate son of God, who is going to save us and make us adopted sons of God. That's what's really important in this passage. But Jesus is the perfect servant and he's called you to be a servant of Christ. Uh, what we have to do is serve one another as, as this passage t- uh, demonstrates in Mary, but also as Peter explains to us, use what God has given you. Be ready to serve one another 
and care about one another, receive one another, connect with one another. This is the body of Christ. We're all aware of the fact that sometimes in a local church, somebody wanders in and all they're wanting to do is to see, I wonder if there's anything real about this. I'm really going through some difficult times. Would it be something if somebody just staggered into our, into our meeting, unknowing, and just kind of wondering what's going on, and all of a sudden what they experience is people loving each other and also expressing love to them? You think that would be a good thing? That would be gospel, wouldn't it? That's practical application of the gospel in our lives. So I just want to encourage you that God has done for you something so glorious that you could actually write your life story and show how God has acted in a gracious way, a glorious, gracious way, in order to use you as an instrument in his hands so that he might love his people through you. Or as Jesus said, uh, if you're believing in me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water, refreshing eternal life flowing out of you into the lives of other people. That's what God wants to do with you. It's really that simple, and it's glorious. And he might even heal your grumpiness. You know, he might, he might work on you in such a way that you actually enjoy people, that you enjoy building people up. You might walk away and go, wow, that was wonderful. That was, that was such a wonderful experience that God would use me to speak his grace into a person's life or to serve somebody just out of the strength. That the, this is what Peter says. If you speak, speak as it were the oracles of God, that God's speaking to you through peop- to people. And if you serve, if you've got the gift of service, do it with the energy that God supplies as he choreographs his people in doing his work. I sometimes watch the guys who set up and tear down. Sometimes I watch uh, them <laughs> do this. And, and uh, I'm amazed the guys that sweat so much and they put out so much energy to do this just for your convenience, just to bless you. That you sit on these soft chairs, these soft, comfortable chairs. And then they pick them up and, and haul them all off and sweep the floor and sweat like crazy. That's the love of Christ. See, that's, that's the love of Christ being manifested through service. And they're commanded to do it with the energy that God supplies. So it's an expression of their faith. So I want to pray for you as a people of God. Father, I, I come before you understanding that you are the one who sent your son into the world, the servant of the Lord, who was willing to lay down his life for us. And now he has called us to lay down our lives for one another, to put on the apron of a slave, to humble ourselves, and to live out this this glorious gospel in the way that we treat one another. I pray you'd help us to love each other, Father. May we be a church that manifestly loves one another the way Jesus commanded us to, and that you would use that to touch people's lives in a deep and profound way. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Father, that we have so much to be thankful for, and that we together can lift up our voices and our hearts in praise and adoration of you because you have been so, so gracious towards us. Help us to pour your grace out in the lives of others, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.